Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, which is a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm your host, Christian Napier, and it's a warm start to the day here in Salt Lake City. I'm super happy to be joined by our next guest, Jackie Edmiston. Jackie is one of the premier major event consultants in the world today, and she's the first Australian to join this podcast. So, Jackie, welcome. How are you? Very well. Thanks, Christian. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Now, where are you joining us from? Uh, Lausanne, which is also very nice and sunny today. Um, and I should say I'm very honored to be the first Australian on the podcast <laughs> because there were a lot of Australians at the Salt Lake Games. So it's nice to be uh, nice to be called up for the podcast. Absolutely. You're the trendsetter. Now, why are you in Lausanne? Um, why am I in Lausanne? Well, um, Rod, my husband, as you know, works for the IOC. So he's in ticketing. Um, and I first came over here for working with the World Academy of Sports. So I had a gig with them. Um, working on the transfer of knowledge from games to games, actually. Um, so really bringing an educational approach to that transfer process instead of just previously that there was the extra net, as you know. Um, a lot of information was available that people could kind of look at um, and digest, but without kind of the interpretation and the context that education was able to provide, it kind of didn't always hit the mark. So so it was really about bringing all of that to life more. And full disclosure, I also work with the IOC as a knowledge management advisor. So it was great to see you there at the IOC offices on occasion when you were working with World Academy of Sport. What are you working on now? Well, um, like most of the event people, I found myself out of work at the end of March, actually. So I had been doing operational readiness with um, a group called ICOSEDA Consulting. So they were working on Tokyo and Expo. And of course, with the postponements, my work also got postponed. Um, and I kind of, you know, I found myself just sitting there and as a, someone who studied emergency management, actually, um, got a degree from the States, I thought, what am I doing sitting here during the middle of a pandemic and not using that in some way? Um, so I came up with the idea of running a survey, actually. Um, and I sent that out to, to my network primarily um, and then got a few networks of networks uh, involved and mostly around the aspects of kind of mental health and where people are sitting right now in terms of how they're feeling and processing all of what's happening as a result of COVID-19. I saw the survey. I took the survey. It was Thank nice you. and short. It was easy to complete. When will we expect to see the results of the survey? Uh, well, the results are available actually online, but um, I'm going to send it out more formally on Friday uh, this week. Uh, and that's part of kind of a launch of a business that I'm la launching on the side as well. So building on kind of the idea of stress management, um, burnout prevention, resilience coaching and, and so forth tied into all of that. Um, yeah, all of that is going to be formally launched on Friday. But the website's up now, liveyourinnercalm.com. Liveyourinnercalm.com. Yeah. Jackie, that's super interesting stuff. And at the end of the podcast, I'll ask about how people can find out more about those things that you're doing. But before we go there, let's hop in the time machine and go back mm -hmm. about 20 years to Salt Lake 2002. <laughs> well, um, so the Sydney Games were, of course, before Salt Lake City. Um, I was working in the area of sport entries in Sydney and the boss of um, sports services, which has sport entries as a part of that, he came over during the games and was looking for someone to, to carry forward into Salt Lake City um, just because I think primarily sport entries is a bit of a niche area and, and having someone with that knowledge base would be helpful. So 
he and I met uh, when he was over in Sydney um, and we basically teed it up that I would move to Salt Lake City after a stint in South America first. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, the rest was kind of history actually. So, yeah, wonderful to have been doing, you know, Sydney first and then Salt Lake a summer and then a winter. So it was it was great, magnificent. So. All right, well, I got to take a step back here. A stint in South America. <laughs> yeah. What lived in South America? <laughs> well, uh, I had a friend living in Buenos Aires at the time. So I arranged to stay with her for a week and then travel for eight weeks um, through Argentina, uh, where else? Peru, Bolivia, Paraguay, um, and Brazil um, before coming back to, to Australia and then Salt Lake. So wow, that's an amazing trip. That's an yeah. amazing trip. Yeah, yeah. No, it was great fun. Loved it. Most of us here in the United States, we don't often take that much time away from work uh, to enjoy things. So I look at that with a bit of envy. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. I wish I could spend two months uh, doing something like that. But it must have been amazing. Then you come to Salt Lake City. What's that like? I mean, that's that's a different place than Sydney. Yeah, definitely. And, and I'd kind of, I guess, been forewarned to expect a bit of a culture shock. But I, I had an absolute ball in, in Salt Lake City. I mean, I, I think from, you know, many different levels. So physically, the, the aesthetics of the place, so Utah as a whole, I mean, you can't beat some of the national parks in Utah. So we were able to get away on a lot of weekend trips and make the most of being as close as we were to Bryce and Zion and Moab, um, went to Vegas a few times, uh, Park City, of course, and the ski conditions too were phenomenal. Um, and I think because a lot of people fear that Utah has a different vibe to it, that you know, the ski slopes weren't even that busy. Um, they're probably heading off to Colorado or elsewhere, I suppose. But, I mean, the Salt Lake Mountains were fantastic uh, for skiing. So so I took that up when I was there. I hadn't skied or snowboarded really before Salt Lake, and I took up snowboarding when I was there. So that was also fun. Well, I'm glad that you were able to pick that up uh, from the locals. I want to come back to one thing coming from Australia. One of the benefits I found of working with so many wonderful Australians is sometimes they brought food with them from Australia, <laughs> specifically Tim Tams, yes. which I think are a national treasure. <laughs> when you came here, were there certain food items that you missed that you couldn't find here that you could only find in Australia? Yeah, well, definitely the Tim Tams, definitely. And then Vegemite. I'm a sucker for Vegemite. And I know a lot of Americans don't like Vegemite, but uh, it's an acquired taste. I guess when you've grown up with it, it tends to stick with you. But um, yeah, I, w I would often, you know, if I was visiting back there or if we had friends going home, we would always ask for them to bring that back. Uh, and I remember on one trip back, I had, I think it was 14 14 uh, packets of Tim Tams <laughs> that were in my luggage coming back. And I actually got pulled over and had the the luggage sort, uh, sorted. So I was kind of like, oh, okay, that's a bit embarrassing. But anyway. <laughs> so how did you get out of that one? You just give a package to the officer and say, hey, you know. Uh, just <laughs> no, luckily I didn't need to. <laughs> I would have been sad if I'd lost a package. <laughs> oh, they're treasures. They're treasures. Yeah. So you get here to Salt Lake. You start working. One of the things that I found or I find in every organized committee that's really amazing is you get to work with lots of interesting people. So who are some of the people that you worked with that you found super interesting or funny or inspiring? Yeah, I think, um, well, sport entry is a bit of a different area because we're, we're not really part of a venue team. So we kind of get quasi adopted, if you like, by the village team um, because we, 
we operate on the outside perimeter of the village um, to do our delegation registration meetings. So we're as close to the village team, I guess, as you can get without being physically in it. Um, So the people I dealt with were primarily the NOC services team, um, hugely involved in those DRMs, of course, Um, the villagers team, results, uh, info, and then accreditation quite heavily. So Ina Grenis and Andrea Macquarie and that whole team, um, I would rattle off that entire team if I could um, because they were all phenomenal and I got to work closely with all of them, which was great. Um, Tom Szeski, uh, John Stein, I spent a lot of time with those two, of course. Um, from results, Frederick Wojciechowski, I probably pronounced it incorrectly, but he's now in the IOC, of course. Uh, John DiCavallo, who has moved back to Park City, interestingly enough. Um, who else? In my team, so uh, so entries was really just kind of me and a couple of half bodies, actually, <laughs> uh, which is quite different how it's done now. But uh, Tosh Brinkerhoff was my my immediate uh, manager, and uh, and him and Jen Savage uh, were two of my kind of closest colleagues, I guess, in the sports services team. And working in that sport department as a whole was fantastic too. I mean, it was just a a great bunch of people who were were kind of just loving life. You know, when you're around those people who are just so enthusiastic and energetic about everything they do, and it's a, it's really a pleasure to be around them, and you get kind of energized being in that space. Um, so it was a lot of fun. And, and as the only Australian in sport too, I was kind of a bit of a novelty, I guess. Um, and I found I, I had to adopt certain ways of behavior. So I actually had to put on an American accent at times to, to have people understand me properly because the Australian slang, I've lost a bit of it now, but back then it was particularly strong. Um, so that was something I had to do to adapt a little bit. Um, and then some of my words, of course, too, you know, Australian words are quite different to to American words, so I would often be laughed at in meetings and so forth and have to figure out why. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So you can pull off an American accent? Well, probably not on the spot, but I can bounce off Americans if I'm in conversation typically. <laughs> because I cannot pull off an Australian accent. <laughs> I have tried repeatedly and I fail miserably every time. For me, it's very, very hard. So I'm curious how it is. It was, was it pretty easy for you to pull off the American accent? Uh yeah, over time. Over time it was, yeah. I mean, Kit McConnell, I'll never forget, he came over from the ISC during the games and he was like, what has happened to your accent, you know? like, And I was just like, oh, I'm just putting it on. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll go back to Australia after this. So. so what were some of the words that people would look at and say, what are you saying? I remember using the word fortnight in a meeting and I think it was Andrea Macquarie and Ina that just kind of burst out laughing and just were like, what is, what is fortnight? Like, <laughs> and I guess you guys use biweekly um, instead of fortnight. Maybe it's, maybe it's caught on. <laughs> no, we do. We do say biweekly instead of fortnight. Although the word yeah. fortnight is quite popular now because there's a video game called Fortnite. Ah, right? there you go. Yeah, there you so go. Who knows? <laughs> well, it's funny to see Andrea McQuarrie, who's Slovenian, <laughs> say, that's not what Americans say. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Andrea, I mean, it is so fabulous, of course, working with her as you've worked with her many times, Christian, and I've been lucky to cross paths with her on so many occasions now and, and continue to do so throughout the world. And she is someone I I look up to, I'm inspired to by her and um, yeah, it's just fabulous working with her. Well, I hope to get her on the podcast one day because yeah, she is a larger than life personality and yeah. Uh, yeah, she's, she's a lot of fun. So yeah, we'll try to get her on. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, tell us about some of the um, challenges that you may have faced 
in your particular area and how you went about resolving them? I think, well, challenges was was the size of us. So I don't even know how many people work on entries in a winter games now. Actually, in Van Ock, I used to sit next to them. I think there was at least maybe six of them. So having just maybe dedicated throughout most of the Salt Lake period and then having a couple of drop-ins, if you like, who were doing some other roles, that was challenging. Um, but I think the benefit of having done it before was that I, I knew what was coming down the pipeline. And so you know, entries typically crescendos, if you like. So close to the games, the months leading up, like every role, really, it really peaks. And having a, you know, an eye on what that peak looked like, I could actually do a lot of that work in advance. And so I did. So in times where I could have had a lull and just kind of enjoyed it a little bit more, I guess, um, I was, I was pre-preparing whatever I could so that that games time period was easier. Um, so that was, that wasn't too bad. Um, during the games, I ended up in the court of arbitration for sport one evening. <laughs> so that was. Um, what did you do wrong? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, no, that was that was an awkward moment, I have to say, because uh, you know I was twenty something at the time, and you just want to make a great impression. And you know, I'm a perfectionist too by nature, so I was quite mortified that I was getting called up to to go to CAS one evening. Um, we had as part of the DRM process, we had let two New Zealand skiers into an event they weren't in fact qualified for. So we ended up in the Court of Arbitration for Sport, basically, you know, trying to figure out whether these two New Zealand competitors could compete the next day or not. Um, and so the New Zealand Olympic Committee was there, FIS were there, um, myself and Tosh were there. Um, and yeah, it was just, you know, an interesting moment. One of those moments you look back on and, and <laughs> look at it as an experience, but at the time I'm sure my knees were knocking and my teeth were chattering. Um, yeah, so it was an interesting moment. So were they ultimately allowed to compete or not? They were, they were, I mean, it was an error that we'd made. So I think the court, you know, erred in favor of that being an error on our part. So, um, so yes, they were allowed to compete, but of course, you know, from an athlete's perspective, it's quite difficult when you're only really given you know the nod that you're in tomorrow's event at probably probably would have been about 8 or 10 p.m the night before so it's not ideal preparations I think for the athletes concerned too right so even though they're allowed to compete they actually didn't do so good the next day I think so can you imagine can you imagine if they were not allowed to compete the headlines in Australia or in <laughs> or in Auckland you could hear you could see it now like Australian conspires to keep <laughs> New Zealanders from competing in the Winter Olympic Games. I know. I um, Yeah, it was quite mortifying that it was our fellow compatriots on the other side of the, the pond, so to speak. So, yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> Well, give us some give us some funny stories. What were some funny things that happened either during the preparation or the delivery of the games? Funny stories. Um, I don't know. For me, I guess I come back to some of the cultural things I experienced. And you know, Americans are so good on ice. And uh, I remember we had a team building day one time, and of course, I, I'm convinced now that Americans are like born with skis or skates on their feet. They basically come out that way. So, uh, you know, we were on ice for a team building event and I had my helmet on and I had two people propped on either side of me trying to like chug me around the, the ice rink. And of course, you know, people like Bev Carey, figure skater and Scott Holland, um, ice skater were just zipping past me and, you know, running circles around me. So 
things like that I remember quite fondly in terms of just the spirit and the camaraderie of the sport team and, and how everyone was so fun and so kind to me, you know, as, as kind of the, the outsider, although there were a few from other countries, but not so many really. The Salt Lake Games, as you mentioned, they were not your first foray into the Olympics. Uh-huh. Uh, you started there in Sydney. They were not the end either. You remained uh-huh. in the movement. What was your journey like after Salt Lake? Wow. After Salt Lake? Um, so interesting. Going back to the travel thing, I always travel after the Games. That's kind of the beauty of a fixed end term on the contract. So after Salt Lake, I went to Jamaica, <laughs> kind of hung out there for a while. Um, and then I kind of killed some time back in Australia until I did right to play. So I went to Ethiopia for six months and I worked on the program there and um, and a lot of that was setting up the NGO. So Right to Play hadn't previously worked in Ethiopia. Um, I was involved there with a, another Canadian girl, actually, who, uh, yeah, we, we basically worked on the NGO setup. And then I kind of went back into the sport world. So All right, I, I got to stop before you go yeah. further into the sport. Ethiopia, that's an <laughs> yeah. interesting place. So uh, another full disclosure, my son served a church mission in Uganda ah. and Ethiopia and spent a lot of time there. Uh-huh. And Ethiopian food to this day is his absolute favorite food. So I'm curious, did you like the food specifically in Jera? Yeah. And the Kaiwat, you know, you pick it up yeah, and eat yeah. and put it in. What was your thoughts on injera and Kaiwat? I, I loved it actually. So Ethiopian food is a is a favorite of mine as well now. Um when you eat it day in, day out for six months, I have to say I was looking forward to trying something else at the end of that period. But now, yeah, if I see an Ethiopian restaurant somewhere, I will try and eat there because uh, the injera is good. The vegetarian dishes are amazing. Um, so Darawat, um, the one you mentioned as well. Um, yeah, really good food. Really good food. The only challenge I have with it is I don't like to eat with my fingers and get my fingers dirty. And they just are just a mess when you eat this food. Yeah. But it's delicious. We have a great place here in Salt Lake City. If you do come here sometime, we'll definitely hit the Ethiopian restaurant. Yeah. And uh, my son and I were in Paris in December and there was a really great Ethiopian restaurant there. In fact, that was uh, my son's very favorite place in Paris to go was an Ethiopian (laughs) restaurant. Okay. So I apologize for that little digression, but I just had to give a shout out to Ethiopia there. Okay, so you go from Ethiopia to... So I go from Ethiopia and I actually do a degree again. So I go back to university and I study international relations, um, but I do that at night. So I go back in the sport during the day and, and events during the day. So during that time I work on Rugby World Cup. I do um, Melbourne Commonwealth Games. Um, and then I kind of I get back into the event biz, I guess, Um and then I actually leave again. I do APEC 2007, and then I leave and go traveling again because that's a <laughs> staple of mine. Um, and I head to Vancouver. So I go on a round-the-world trip, actually. So I have a couple of stops before Vancouver. In Vancouver, I catch up with a lot of friends that are working on uh, Van Ock already. And one of them, Matt Jackson, who also did Salt Lake, um, pulls me aside and says, we've got this position coming open for C3 and operational readiness. Are you interested? And I was kind of like, well, you know, I'm in the middle of a world trip. I don't really want to start a job right now. You know, I want to travel. And anyway, I throw my hat in the ring. I do the interview. I go traveling and it was about three, no, probably two months later that I get the call up. And I think I was in Europe somewhere at the time. And they say, you got the job. 
um, you know, when can you come back? And so I kind of fast track the tail end of my trip and I end up back in Vancouver. So I go from Vancouver to London, to Sochi, um, Delhi in there, as you know, Christian. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, bonded for life over that one. And where else? Yeah, so then we end up back in Vancouver actually because we loved it so much back in Vancouver and we've got permanent residency now there and citizenship and we thought that would be home for the end of it um, and then we get over to Switzerland. So you never know. You never know where you might end up. <laughs> well, you say we, so who is the other half of we? The other half is Rod Edmiston. So he's been in ticketing since Atlanta. Um, so he's been in this gig longer than me. Um, yeah, but we didn't actually meet until Vanock. And we met basically at the final party. So I was booked on a flight two days later to basically go back to Australia and call Australia home. Um, and we kind of met, so to speak. We'd obviously met before then during Vanock. But, um, but yeah, that's when we kind of started dating, I guess, on the, the final night. <laughs> that is so incredible. It's so incredible. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Rod. So some people like Rod will stay in that niche for their entire career. So Rod is definitely the ticketing guy with a, you know, probably the world's leading expert on ticketing systems. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, just thinking about sport entries, you know, Melina Xanthopoulos yes. has been doing that sport entries forever, but you kind of moved around. You, you yeah. experienced different things. How was that for you? You know, taking your career into new directions in yeah. this event space? Uh, you know what, for me it's it's important because I'm, I'm I probably describe myself as someone who gets bored easy um, and I'm very, very curious and I always kind of, I, I like having a challenge. So if I feel that I'm already, you know, an expert at something or that I already know how to do something, I, that's when the, the interest for me starts to wane a little bit. Um, and that's how I felt after two times in sport entries, by no means an expert, but just you know, I'd kind of done it twice now. I'd kind of had the chance to improve on some of the things you want to improve on the first time. Um, so I just felt that, yeah, moving forward, I would like to try something different. And Vanock, I think, was the real turning point for me in terms of kind of broadening my horizons in the game space. Um, entries is such a small part of the games. Um, Whereas, you know, being exposed to C3 and readiness, it, it gives you such a viewpoint across the entire organization. Um, and that was something I loved and still do, actually, is just having that kind of, you know, helicopter view of the world and, and getting to understand what every function's doing and how all the cogs fit together. Um, it's just super interesting. So being a part of the mock too and seeing some of the challenges that come through there um, and then being able to apply that into the readiness space as well. Um, all of that's been, yeah, fascinating to me, a fascinating journey. Well, coming back to Salt Lake during games time, what is the day, what is a day in the life of a sport entries person look like? <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> okay. So basically, yeah, start pretty early. Um, like most people in the games time, um, because we were, our work was mostly on the front end. So for me, games time was essentially before the game started. But yeah, you'd basically pitch up pretty early, kind of between 6 and 7 a.m. typically. Uh, you'd go through all the entries that you have in the system um, in terms of some data 
quality assurance checks. And then you'd prepare for whatever DRMs were on that day, the delegation registration meetings. And by prepare, I mean you would go through each of the records basically and just make sure that they were kind of all, you know, crossing the I's, dotting the T's other way around, <laughs> dotting the I's, crossing the T's. Um, and then you make notes basically of any data that might be missing, any qualification queries you have and so forth. And so you'd have this little dossier, if you like, and then you'd go into the meetings with the NOCs and MPCs and you would discuss line by line back then. I'm sure it's probably a bit different now. <laughs> um, line by line, every athlete status. Um, and then, of course, the, the team official calculation um, is worked out based on the athlete number um, and Rule 42 at the time. I don't think it is anymore, actually. Um, that comes into play. Village allotments start to, to pitch up. And, uh, and yeah, so you do your do meetings and then you'd come out of the meetings and, of course, update anything into the system that you needed to. And then the, the data would eventually go through the results system. So you'd have to kind of get the records in check before it basically went through to results so that results had as clean a data as possible. And all of this would take you through till about 10 p.m. at night um, in bits and bobs. So, yeah. <laughs> well, were you just hunkered down in meeting rooms all day long or did you actually have an opportunity to go out and see a few events? Well, yeah, as I said, like our role was pretty much finished when uh, when the village, well, not when it opens, but when competition starts, our role's pretty much done. So, yes, that's the upside is that I, I was able to see a ton of sport um, and luckily did. So, as I mentioned, because I was an Australian, I had such little exposure to, to winter sport and winter anything really. I, I wasn't someone who went down to Threadbow very regularly or anything like that. So, so for me it was amazing to have the opportunity to just to get out there and see all of the winter sports that I could and to learn about them because I didn't know, for instance, what moguls was. I didn't know what um, aerials was and, and curling and all of these different sports. So it was fascinating to have that opportunity and the time to be able to do that. Well, Jackie has been a huge amount of fun walking down this memory lane, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> Nobody can see me doing air quotes on, <laughs> on the podcast, but I'm doing memory lane yeah, in, yeah. in air quotes because I say it so often, but it's very cliche, but it's true. If you recall, we have a few assignments. Yes. Yes, yes. So I want to go through those assignments. Uh, first assignment is a song. Is there a song that when you hear it today, just takes you right back to Salt Lake? Well, I would have said Beautiful Day by U2 just because I went and saw uh, U2 in Vegas actually during my Salt Lake days. But I know Dan Merkley already picked that one. <laughs> so I will go with, um, it's a lame story, but um what is it? Smooth Criminal by Michael Jackson. And it was not recorded, of course, anywhere near the time of Salt Lake City. Um, but there was a big group of us that went down to Lake Powell for a holiday, actually, over Labor Day weekend in 2001. And that song, I don't know whose playlist it was, but that song kept repeating itself like all the time. And we had a, a friend that was down with us, Abby, and so when Annie, are you okay? Came on, we all changed the words to Abby, are you okay? And for some reason, that just stuck. And every time I hear that song now, I cannot get Abby, are you okay? Out of my head. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's a great story. You're right. Beautiful day was mentioned by Dan. Um, someone else mentioned beautiful day as well. I can't remember who it was. And uh, but we'll definitely add smooth yeah. criminal to the and list. And I apologize because it's a it's not the best song. <laughs> oh, it, it's it's funny. I don't know if you heard Chris Crowley's uh, podcast, but he nominated. Oops, I did it again. So. <laughs> No worries. It's not about song quality, but it's about a song that just takes you back to Salt Lake 2002. So we'll add that to our Spotify playlist. So listeners, you can look that up on Spotify, Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective. Now for the food. Mm -hmm. Was there a particular restaurant that you enjoyed going to? It could have been something that you did during lunch, but it also could have been a place that you would go on nights or weekends. Yeah. So for me, it was Ichiban, actually, which was a bit of a drive from the office. But the sushi there I just found amazing. And uh, the dragon roll in particular was kind of my favorite. And to this day, I still go into sushi places trying to replicate that dragon roll experience and I haven't been able to yet. So if I ever get back to Salt Lake, and I'll probably be disappointed, but I will go straight to Ichiban. <laughs> all right. We're going to put that on the map oh, on the on. website. Uh, on my website, we have a map with all of the restaurants and you can see all of those locations. And hopefully yeah. once this whole coronavirus <laughs> thing ends and the restaurants open up again, people can go, you know, go and start uh, visiting the restaurants once more. All right. Ichiban, which is an interesting choice because when people think of sushi, they don't necessarily think of Salt Lake City. No, it's true. Uh, a landlocked yes. town <laughs> that's about 700 miles from the nearest ocean. Yep, so true. Okay, last question for you. As you survey your time there in Salt Lake City, um, is there a particular moment that today you look back on and it just kind of gives you those goosebumps, those chills? Yeah, I think um, there were two, I think, standouts for me. And I guess the the first one in terms of an Olympic moment was the Stephen Bradbury winning gold on the short track course, um, which of course was, you know, a bit of luck as it, as it had it. But uh, it was just, I guess, so unpredicted and so unexpected and yeah, when he crossed the line, as he was surprised, of course, <laughs> um, we were. And I just remember all of us, we were actually at home that evening, uh, but there was a few of us and we just, we kind of just leapt off the couch in complete disbelief and, and started screaming and yelling and hugging each other. And, and then, of course, you know, reaching out and <laughs> the perfect example, you know, is the perfect example of the last man yeah, standing, yeah. right? But I, I also, I kind of love how it's just, it's a metaphor for life, you know, just stay in the race because you never know what's going to happen, right? So, absolutely. Yeah. So that was definitely one. Um, and then I'd also say, and I don't think any games has repeated this since Salt Lake, but one thing they did for the workforce was that for all the paid staff, they allowed us all to hold the torch during the torch relay. Um, so I remember going down, and I can't remember where it was, but it was near the office. So I remember heading over there, and there was three of us that had done it together and just holding the torch for the first time, a lit torch, you know, and uh, I've since been lucky enough to run with the torch, but but in that moment in Salt Lake, it was just, you know, it was the first time I'd seen the torch up close, held it, and it was just incredible. And I think to this day, the torch just has such a special connection with, well, most people, I think, but for me particularly, I really, there's just something about the flame, I think, that that just connects us, I guess, on a global level. It's, it's yeah, it's phenomenal. So, I loved that Salt Lake offered that opportunity, and I don't, I don't think we've seen that since, so that was quite special. It was special, and it's interesting. Several people on the podcast so far have mentioned the torch in one way, shape, or form, and, and so I appreciate you bringing that up. 
Jackie, it's been a huge amount of fun. I thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. If people want to learn more about the really cool things that you're doing these days, how might they best get in touch with you or find out more about your your uh, current projects? Uh, well, I think for anyone from Salt Lake, I'm part of that Salt Lake alumni group on Facebook as well. Um, if you're not, then LinkedIn is probably a great way to connect. Or you can get me via email, Jackie, J-A-C-Q-U-I, at liveyourinnercalm.com. Um, and of course, the website, which is now live and still being tinkered on, but live nonetheless. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. We'll check that website out again. Thank you so much, Jackie and listeners. Please like and subscribe to our podcast. Thanks so much, Christian. Huge pleasure to be on the show.